Well, I'm excited about, well, let me say it this way. I can't say I'm excited about this portion of the Scripture. I'm excited about every portion of the Scripture. But I think there's certain times and events which capture our attention or should capture our attention with a little greater significance as to God's purpose in that event. I think you're following me on this. I'm not elevating, deprecating any parts of the Word. And in this pre-cross activity is, as we said before, the culmination of what God has eternally decreed as His intention, the fulfillment of what God has eternally decreed as His intention for creating humanity. And so, I I have a great desire that we see this, not just as another portion of Scripture, not just the communion meal, but we see this with a building up from Genesis 3, 6, and he ate. Remember the sin of Adam. From Genesis 3, 6, God has been moving toward this time. And everything that we see and hear of God in the Old Testament and into the New Testament until this time is a movement, if you would, upward to the pinnacle of where we are now in this event of the meal and then what will transpire all the way through the death of Jesus. We are, if you would, at the highest point of God's purpose, bringing to final fruition in His Son and by His Son, that which has always been His intention for us and the very reason for creation itself. And so here we are in this meal, the most significant meal in all eternity until we get to the marriage supper of the Lamb. But I can't say this is more than that, that's more than this, but at least I know within the time frame, within the time context of the old creation, this is the most important meal of all meals. And it sums up and collects all the covenant meals and all the covenant celebrations and all the covenant promises. It sums up all of that from the beginning in Adam all the way through All of it is summed up and is centered in and is being fulfilled and announced to be fulfilled in this one meal. And so, today we're continuing in Matthew 26, verses 20 to 29. I'm hoping we'll get through this. If we don't, I'm I'm okay in taking my time. So, let me read verses 20 to 25. And when it was evening, 
Jesus recline at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? Am I the one? And he answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? Now remember, we saw last week that Judas has already gone out and conspired with the priest. Do you remember that last week? Okay. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. In other words, that's a, uh, an idiomatic phrase which means yes. Yes, you've confessed it. It's right out of your mouth. That's right. So now, now let's look at it. Although Jesus is fully aware that Judas would betray him, he's fully aware of this. Now, let's get this, because some kind of way, as believers, we think that we have a special path in front of us which does not have in it the kinds of issues that we think should not be in it. And so Jesus, aware that Judas is going to betray him, nevertheless, he has chosen him as one of the twelve. Remember in Matthew 10, 2 through 4, he's choosing the disciples, and he chooses Judas to be his disciple. Jesus purposefully and specifically calls Judas. Out of all the people whom he could call, he calls that one man to be part of this, if you would, band of brothers. And he calls him intentionally and knowingly. And he knows who will betray him. How does he know that? Well, he knows it in two ways, and these two ways are really one way, but I break down the one way into two categories, A and B. He knows it by revelation of the Word of God, by the inspiration or understanding or discernment given to him by the Holy Spirit. That's how he knows. That's how he knows. It's not just an intuition. Hey, I think that man, it's a concrete revelation of the truth and the validity and the unchangeableness of the Word of God. Remember, Jesus breathes and lives the Word of God, not because He is the Word of God, but because as to His humanity, He has learned the Word of God, rigorously studied it, and memorized it from His birth, or actually from His youth as, you know, as, as early as possible. And so listen what he says in John 6, 70 to 71. <clears throat> Jesus answers them. He says, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? Remember we talked last week in John 17, 12, and Jesus calls Judas what? The son of perdition or the son of destruction. Do, do you remember that? 
That is a Hebrew idiomatic phrase, which means this person is of the evil one, doomed to destruction. It is not a man who was saved, as some say, and then lost his salvation some kind of way along the way and then betrayed Jesus. He was never part of the company of God as to real discipleship. He was part of a called, he was a called man into this group, and he was called to be the traitor. Jesus knew when he called, he is calling the man who will betray him. Isn't that interesting? Isn't it interesting that God would work that way? And yet we say, well, would God ever do this and that? And would God put this person in? Would God act like? Yes. Amen? Yes. Absolutely. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. John 13, 11, Jesus, remember washing the feet, remember that? Jesus says this, Jesus knew who was going to betray him. So when did Jesus choose Judas? When? Jesus' decision to choose Judas was in keeping with the Father's eternal, definite plan. I want to make sure I'm doing the right lesson because I, I know I covered some of this before. And it's just ringing back. Wait, we've said this before. Why then did Judas... Why did you, Jesus choose Judas? Why did he do that? Because, you see, he was walking out God's plan for his life, even though that plan was, if you would, humanly speaking, obnoxious and difficult and filled with terror and trial and problems. He knew this going in, and yet he did it anyway. Now, that should be instructive for us because we have in us, if we're saved, the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Amen? The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. And so the same Spirit who walked and worked resident, resident in Jesus and led him and inspired him is the same Spirit, and he works in us the same way. Jesus also knew God's purpose was the saving of life. So he knew that Judas was in keeping with the Father's eternal plan. He knew that God's purpose was the saving of life. Therefore, he willingly and joyfully chose God's will even at the cost of his own life. He knew the difficulties. Now, we have to be careful because we sometimes say, well, you know, can this be God? Because look at all the problems I'm experiencing. Can this be God? Any of you ever asked that in the midst of everything? Can this relationship be God? Because look what's happening. Can this job be God? Because look at the problems I'm having. I'm in the midst of all these crazy people. <clears throat> can this financial situation be God? Or can I, where I am living, be God? It, wouldn't it be better if I were living somewhere else, which is much more idyllic for me? That's God, and this isn't. And believers, we're making decisions like this all the time in relation to the natural circumstances rather than in the midst of the circumstances asking God and discerning His will rather than saying, well, I know His will is to bless me, and we have an askewed understanding of what that means sometimes. Therefore, this can't be God. We have to be very careful with these issues. Jesus is 
choosing the greatest blessing of his life by choosing Judas. Oh, right? Right? Jesus, Jesus is choosing the great blessing of his ministry and of his purpose by choosing this one who would betray him. Jesus said this in 628 of John, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. So he is the consummate, spirit-filled man who will do the will of the Father. The next verse, 26. And now as they were eating, remember the meal, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body. Now, notice I'm not going into the Passover background. I think probably we've done enough of that in the church, so I'm kind of skipping that background there. But all of this, or so much of this, is done with the view of the Passover of Exodus, remember, chapter 12, and then the uh, Day of Atonement in reference to Leviticus 16. This whole thing is a double thing, the deliverance of the people of Israel through the death of the uh, Lamb, and also the forgiveness of sins in Leviticus 16. That's two together here. So he took the bread. During the meal, when Jesus took a loaf of bread, remember that, he broke and distributed it to his disciples, and we are reminded of his feeding the crowd in the wilderness. Remember that? As Moses was the deliverer of the Old Testament, and you remember he led the people out into the wilderness, and the people began to murmur, we're going to starve to death. We need to be back in Egypt. Yeah, we were slaves, but at least we weren't starving to death. At least we had food on the table. And so the Lord, because of their murmuring, commanded Moses, I mean, sorry, murmuring, gave the people bread from heaven, manna from heaven, remember, and he fed them. So under the leadership of Moses, God gave the bread to the people to sustain their life. Remember in John 6, 1 through 5. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of Galilee after feeding the 5,000. And a large crowd was following him. Now, the Passover, you see, it's the same time. It's the same religious time of the year, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus says to Philip, Hey, Philip, where are we going to get some bread so that these people may eat? Now, you can imagine, Philip, why ask me? I mean... <laughs> Which, how many? Hmm. Can God ask some peculiar questions of us? Verse 10, and Jesus said, have the people sit down. We skipped the Philip thing, you know. Well, we have Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. You see, the same kind of distribution is happening at the meal. Verse 12, and when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. And they gathered them up and, fulfilled, and filled how many? Twelve baskets. So you see, in this feeding, Jesus is reenacting the event of Exodus 16. He's reenacting the event when Yahweh caused manna to fall from heaven to feed the people. So he's doing at this meal 
that which reminds them of what God did in the wilderness for what? For the purpose of sustaining and delivering and keeping his people spiritually, physically nourished. He's reminding them through this. And I would believe that as he broke the bread and the loaf and distributed it and they all ate, hopefully they had in their minds, this is like what happened in the wilderness. This is the prophet that Moses spoke about. Remember that prophet? Remember that? The prophet who would come? Where is that? Leviticus what? Sorry, Deuteronomy what? 15, 18, the prophet who would come. And Jesus explained the significance of the feeding in John 6 after he's fed the people. Truly I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And so as he is, has affirmed himself as the bread of life, the true spiritual life for his people, as he gives this bread during this meal, they are remembering he is distributing, if you would, his life to these disciples. In giving this bread, he is showing this is a symbol or an enactment of what will happen when I die and when I rise again. Just like you're receiving the bread, each of you tonight, on that day after my death and resurrection, all of you are going to receive the bread of life, as it were, come down from heaven and being given to you. And so like the loaf of bread, Jesus is the true bread of heaven. He would have to die in order that his life would be distributed to his people. And they would receive just as they did. And then in verse 27 and 28, then he took a cup. And we had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood in the new of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's talk about the cup. What is this cup? Well, in Luke twenty two twenty, Jesus says this, and we discussed this last week a little bit. This cup, he says, is the new covenant in my blood. So Jesus is not just taking a cup. Hey, give me the cup. Can you give me the cup over there? Thanks. Let's, let's share. But he is taking the cup and specifying this particular cup, not because of a physical type of cup it is, you know, the chalice, and people make very much of, oh, the chalice itself. Was it gold? Was it, you know, foolishness. This cup, a standard cup, just a standard cup, I would believe, at the meal. He takes that cup, and he says, this cup, this cup represents something. It represents the new covenant in my blood. Now, what does he mean by the cup? What is the significance of the cup? Because when these men hear this word cup, they are Jews, and they are pretty well familiar with the various promises and prophecies of the Old Testament. They pick up probably on what is meant here. What is Jesus really saying about this cup? Well, first of all, it's a cup, two types of cups are mentioned significantly in the Old Testament. First, and I don't mean first because it's in order. It's the first one I want to talk about. The cup of blessing. Remember in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, Paul talks about this, the cup of blessing. He's talking about the communion meal, the cup of blessing. The first cup, or the cup that I'll first talk about is the cup of blessing. 
Psalm 116, 13. I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. It is the cup that is illustrated to contain all the blessings and the mercy and the grace and the work of God on behalf of his people. This is the cup of blessing. All that God has for his people and even God himself being their salvation, this cup represents, this cup of blessing represents the fullness of what God is for his people. They understand that. Remember this, Psalm 23, 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Overflows with what? The presence and the work, the blessings of God. So first of all, when Jesus is saying the cup, he's referring to it as a cup of blessing. Secondly, it's also the cup of God's wrath. In Isaiah 51, 17, it's the cup of wrath. Both cups are illustrated in this one cup. You cannot have one without the other. Both are contained in this one cup, if you would. Ezekiel 23, 33, called, it is the cup of horror and desolation. And I want to read some of these verses to you because as we move toward the cross, I want us to have at least in some of these verses, we, didn't, we won't cover all these verses that the Old Testament says about the wrath of God and the judgment of God, but a few, the few that had the word cup in it. When we read these, <clears throat> I want us to get a feel, a feel for what the Bible is saying about the consequences of sin as to God's judgment want to get a feel for that. Not just an intellectual understanding, oh yeah, I know that's the wrath of God. But get a feeling for it. A feeling. Because Jesus fully knows these scriptures. And as we read these scriptures, when he says, this is the cup that I'm giving to you, that I'm going to be drinking. He knows what he's doing, and he understands what he's doing. And he's beginning to experience the reality of what this cup is all about, and at the same time experiencing what the cup of blessing is all about. So you see, we have these dual cups, if we would, we must not differentiate one from the other, distinguish one from the other as to separate them. So it is a cup of great joy that he's taking here. The cup of blessing, my people will be saved, but it's also then a cup of horror for him. It's both of these in this one cup. Psalm 75, 8, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours it out, pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Revelation fourteen ten, the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. This is the worst cup that anyone could drink, the worst end for anyone's life. It is the cup of the fierce 
anger of God against sin. It is a cup, as we said already from Ezekiel, of horror and desolation. And as Jesus begins to drink this cup, he not only knows the Scriptures, but he begins to experience these Scriptures in his soul. He begins to experience them. He begins to change. You remember in John 14, something's happening to the Lord Jesus as he's sitting at the table. It's not, hey, take the cup, oh, great man, wonderful, you know, but there begins to be a change in this man, and he tells them, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. He's encouraging them and instructing them, but they're seeing something changing about their confident, always in control master. Now, he is always in control, but it begins to appear that something is happening here. And quite frankly, if we were there, we would not like what we were seeing as Jesus, I think, visage and breathing is changing during this meal. So you remember the last week we said that a covenant, remember that we talked about the covenant of redemption. This is a covenant meal that Jesus is celebrating, and it is celebrating the and, and anticipating the fulfillment of the eternal covenant of redemption. If you weren't here last week, you're just going to have to go get the, uh, the uh, recording of it, however, online or CD. But this is the covenant of redemption, that eternal covenant that was made in God among the three persons of God, that the Father's will to have a people through the creation activity of the Son by the Spirit, knowing that these people would fall in Adam and knowing that his people would need to be redeemed. Why? In order to maintain the integrity and the honor of God's purpose, the Son then agrees that he would become the propitiation for their sin, the payment for their sin by the Spirit, so that in his death and resurrection, God would send then the Spirit of to collect his people, and to fulfill all of his purposes for them. This is the covenant of redemption we talked about last week. But you remember that last week we said that a covenant was ended into on the grounds of an oath to keep the stipulations of the covenant. Okay, one person enters a covenant into covenant with another, and there are a list of stipulations or rules, if you would, or commandments, and both agree to keep these stipulations. And if the stipulations are kept, what? You have the blessings of obedience. Remember in Deuteronomy 28, 1 to 14, all the blessings. Go back and read Deuteronomy. What, is, what, what chapter did I say? 28, 1 to 15. You have all the blessings. These are some of the blessings that we have, there are many more, enumerated in Christ. But then, if you don't keep the stipulations of the covenant, what happens? You receive all the curses. And so the curses are delineated in Deuteronomy 28, 15 to, 15 to 45. All the curses. And by the way, when you read those curses, there are a whole lot of them. There's a lot of stuff going on in those curses. Every one is an aspect or a facet of the curse, and what is the curse of broken covenant? 
death. The curse of broken covenant is death. And so that curse is enumerated, if you would, or explained in the curses, which are aspects of the curse. So the curse is the root, and all of these other curses, if you would, are the fruit. Every one of these curses has to do with an aspect of death. When you read them, you'll see that. Every one of them has to do with death in some way or another. So God created Adam to, and to confer the blessing of his presence, remember? He created Adam and had a covenant with Adam. Now, even though the word covenant is not mentioned there, it's mentioned in Hosea 6-7. I think it's 6-7 or 6-8. And it's a covenant. <clears throat> and remember the stipulations of the covenant. Adam, you and I are going to walk in covenant together. We're going to walk in fellowship together. But here's what has to happen, Adam. You have to have, these are the regulations of the covenant. And so you remember what verses did he give the regulations of the covenant that summed up obedience. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. The two trees, you may eat of that tree, but you may not, what? Eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. If you break the covenant, if you disobey my will, death is the result. But if you obey my will, then blessing of my presence and fellowship forever is a result. It's a covenant. But you remember Adam broke it. Genesis 3, 6, and he ate. And in breaking the covenant, he incurs the curse of death, not only upon himself, but upon all of his progeny, all those who come from him. And how many are in Adam when he dies? I'm sorry, when he sins. All except one man. All except one man. One man was not in Adam. One man. That's why this one man was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary because he was not in Adam. Had he been in Adam, he would have inherited the curse. So he was conceived by the Spirit in Mary. All of us were in Adam. And when Adam sinned, the curse of death came onto all of us, proving that we all sin. We were all born and bred in sin Therefore, we are sinners. As I said before, the problem with us is not the sin that we create. It is the position in Adam that we have inherited, producing the sin. All the sin is is the fruit of the root of being in the wrong place, if you would. And so as believers, we certainly want to say to someone, sin is indicative of your being in Adam, of your already being condemned. You're not condemned because you did that sin. You're condemned because you were in Adam, therefore you did that sin. Amen? <clears throat> it's in Adam that we were condemned. In Christ we are saved. And all the sin that was in Adam is forgiven in Christ. I think we talked about that one time. So Adam disobeyed, and the curse of death ensued. Remember Genesis 2, 17, and you shall surely die. And this is what happened to all of us. <clears throat> During the meal, Jesus took the cup, and when he took the cup, he was saying that he would be drinking the wine of God's wrath on behalf of his people so that they would not have to, so that they would be able to drink the cup of blessing. He knew this. I will be the blessing to my people by becoming their curse. I will be the blessing to my people by coming 
becoming their curse, taking their curse upon my shoulders, I who deserve no curse, and taking that curse upon my shoulders so that the blessing of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit might be given to them in my death, burial, resurrection, ascension, exaltation by sending the Holy Spirit. So Jesus drank the cup of the curse of death so that we could drink the cup of the blessing of his life. In this cup were gathered, as I said, all the curses, all the curses, all of them indicative of the one curse of death. Remember Galatians 3 says, For all who rely on the works of law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who, hangs, who is hanged upon a tree. You see, this is the cup that Jesus knew that he would be drinking. And we have to get this. It's important to get it today as we move toward Gethsemane. Because in Gethsemane, we may forget certain things that Jesus knew. And I will repeat this. As you know, I have repeated a few things occasionally. Why? Because we tend to forget and we tend to fragment the Bible into bits and pieces rather than seeing it as a continuous comprehensive revelation, a whole a sphere. Jesus knows this. He knows fully well what he's doing. He knows it's the will of the Father. He knows what's going to happen. How does he know it? Well, because he's the Son of God and he knows all things. No. As to his humanity, he doesn't know diddly squat unless he sees it in the Word as revealed to him in understanding and discernment by the Spirit. Amen? The Holy Spirit is the one who engenders into Jesus the very life and ministry and the purpose of God the Father. As the Son of God, remember the nature, Christ's nature, divine nature and human nature in the same person. He takes to himself a human body and soul. The Son of God does. And the Son of God directs the Holy Spirit in the person of Jesus Christ, the man Jesus, to minister to Jesus these issues. He knows all this. This man knows this. This is a man. This is a human being. He's a person. He knows what's going to happen. He understands what's going to happen. He's beginning to experience the horror of it. He knows it's his Father's will. And so, what propels him forward? The same thing propels him forward is what should propel us forward in whatever circumstance we find ourselves. What moves us forward when we find ourselves in the mud of life? What moves us forward? The circumstances? Better not. What moves us forward? Well, I think looking at this last verse, 29, helps us with this. Again, all of this is in the mind of Jesus. All of it is in the mind of Jesus. 
the entire comprehensive revelation and work of the Old Testament is in this man's mind. And I emphasize the humanity of the Son of Man. And so here's what he says in verse 29. He says, I tell you, I will not drink it again, again, of the fruit of the vine, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. What moves Jesus forward? The Father's kingdom. The Father's kingdom moves him forward. You see, Jesus, when as he takes the cup, fully aware of what he's doing, fully aware, maybe not fully, is going to become more fully aware, but as fully as he understood at that point, because Jesus will grow in understanding, and he will grow in horror. He will grow in terror of what's happening. The horror and the terror is just beginning to dawn on him, and he's going to grow in this. We're going to see the horror and terror crescendoing in another garden, but it's beginning now. We're in the foothills, if you would, of that. What keeps him going? What propels him forward? What is his motive? My Father's kingdom. You see, Jesus, in drinking the cup, was not centered on the cup in and of itself, but saw the cup as God's means to be blessing to us, therefore to be a blessing to God. He looked beyond the immediate to the fulfillment. Now, I have difficulty in doing that, don't you? We get bogged down with all the things of this life, and we just get stuck. And what we must do, we have to decide. Jesus had to decide. He's a man who has to make decisions. This is not an automatic. Well, that's Jesus. He just kind of flowed with the flow. He had to make a decision against his own humanity and the preservation of his own life that all of us have that instinct to keep our own life. None of us want to go through these things, do we? And he, as a human being, his flesh also did not want to go through this. Let's face it. We'll see that. Yet what kept him going was something greater than the immediacy of the issue, something greater than his fleshly well-being, pleasure. It was the Father's will. I'm not going to drink this again until we do it in my Father's kingdom. Jesus drinks the cup with the final goal of God in mind, which will be initiated in his resurrection and culminated in his return. It is a decision, friends. I sit with people all day long, and I have to do the very same thing. Gene has to do the same thing. Anna has to do the same thing. You know, Don, Donnie has to do the same thing. Steve has to. We all have to do the same thing. We face whatever life gives us in this fallen world. And every moment we make a decision, we have to make a decision, either to honor and extol the world or honor and trust and extol God. Well, it's hard. May I say it this way? It's hard as hell. The struggle, and we'll see this in the next weeks or so, here's Here's where the biggest issue is, the biggest struggle, the biggest difficulty is in 
the decision. It's in the decision. Because the decision will produce either the works of the flesh or the works of the Holy Spirit. It's the decision. And at that particular point, the will's decision, at that particular point, Satan and all his minions are against us, working fervently in us to make a decision contrary to faith in God. Whatever you're going through, I don't say this glibly. I don't care. I don't say it glibly in that way. What's the issue? It's not what you're going through. It's your decision. It's your decision. The Son of Man is in the same place. He has constantly made decisions and always made decisions in preference for God's will. And then all of a sudden, the greatest decision of his earthly life is looming before him. And we'll see that working out. What's going to happen? He knows this, what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 14, 24. He knows that after his resurrection, then comes, I'm sorry, then comes the end when he will deliver the kingdom of God to the Father. The kingdom, the kingdom of God. Let me say it, that he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. He knows this, that his purpose is this. All that I'm doing, all the people gathered together, all of the work of salvation, all of the agony of the cross, all of it is going to redound on that day when I, who have been given all authority in heaven and earth, remember Matthew 28, 18, I, as a man who now rules and reigns over all the heavens and the earth by the will of God the Father, I will then turn and give all of this to God so that in all things God may be glorified. Amen? In all things. That's what kept Jesus moving forward. He knew the Scriptures. He had the Holy Spirit. And he had to make, just as we do, or we do as he did, make decisions moment by moment to trust God, to believe God, to walk with God in the face of the most hideous issue that any of us would ever face. Amen? So next week, we're going to, is, is next week Gethsemane? Yes, next week is going into the Garden of Gethsemane. And I'll say this about Gethsemane. And just think about it this week. Many times when we ask, where was the greatest battle ever fought? We would say the cross. That's wrong. The greatest battle of all eternity was in Gethsemane. Gethsemane is the battleground for the will. And the cross is the payment for sin. The battle is in Gethsemane. And we want to take a couple of weeks or whatever it takes to look at this most magnificent time, this three-hour period of Jesus in the garden, to hopefully get a better appreciation of what was happening. Amen? So next couple of weeks for Gethsemane. Thank you.